Father, these songs express the attitude of our hearts of gratitude and tenderness toward our Savior, how weak we are in living it out, how fickle our faith can be. And yet, for those of us who know you, who have experienced that life-giving work of the Holy Spirit, who know the reality of repentant faith, union with Christ, fellowship with you, Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, uh, we do sing yet with sincerity and with hope and with joy and delight in you whom our heart loves and longs to be with. I ask now as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table and look at this uh, very important topic uh, this morning that you would guide us, that you would uh, bring your word to bear on our thinking and on our hearts and um, give us wisdom and growth and holiness. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, as you know, we started uh, what was introduced last week broadly, the Christian, the internet, and social media, I think is what it was called last week. But the broader picture that we're talking about is the Christian and the internet. We'll get to social media, I intend, next week, and then do maybe one or two more messages uh, after that. But uh, this morning, what I want to do is look at the issue of pornography, the internet and pornography. Uh, I originally was going to do social media, but most of my reading was in this direction, so I thought uh, maybe we would just do that this morning. This is, of course, a a very large topic, and it's one that we're only going to touch on, as with all of the topics that we're going to cover, uh, lightly. There are many of these points that deserve much more attention uh, than we're going to have time to give it uh, this morning, but I do want to at least give a broad picture and maybe deal with some of the most important considerations in this issue of pornography. It is a pervasive part of our culture. There's hardly, and I would dare to say none, uh, congregation or family that does not have some level of involvement with the issue of pornography. It has become a ubiquitous, remember that, it's everywhere is the idea. Somebody said I was using big words last week. But you're supposed to use them again and again, so I'll keep using it every time. Uh, it is a ubiquitous part of our culture. You can, you can hardly escape it. Let me give you just a few statistics, uh, just as by way of introduction. Uh, one, one said, as of 2009, three of the largest pornographic sites, RedTube, UPorn, and Pornhub, collectively make up 100 million unique visitors. That was nearly nine years ago. Uh, it has become a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, I think one statistic I read, I didn't write it down, was in the, was in the 50, like 56 billion or something around there. Uh, it's hard to overestimate, this was from a news article, it's hard to overestimate just how much porn is consumed online. Last year, Pornhub, which is one of the major three, viewers alone watched 91 billion videos. Not million, billion videos. And there were a total of 44,000 visits to the site per hour. Incredible. This is made possible in part because of the access and sense of anonymity, something I'll mention again later, that comes along with the internet and the fact that most of the pornography that is available now is actually available free of charge, which is something also new with the advent of the internet. As a matter of fact, 
Uh, one has said, as of October 2007, YouPorn was the highest-ranked adult website, according to Alexia, ranging in the top 35 globally visited sites. In the same year, the site was adding 15 million new users each month. A men's magazine, popular men's magazine, gave this report. On Wednesday, Pornhub dropped their annual year in review in which the porn company breaks down every iota of porn you consume where you consume it, when and for how long. The results, in the 21.2 billion, that's again with a B, visits, Pornhub.com garnered over the year, people consumed a whopping 4,392,486,580 hours of good old-fashioned pornography, according to their analytics. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. There is some debate on actual numbers, but whatever the actual numbers, pornography is a significant part of our culture. And as I said before, there's hardly a home, a congregation, a family that is not at some level affected with this reality. And it has caused untold damage in, in multiple ways, but especially within the family and within marriages. Let me give you another statistic. One author reports that in 2003, a survey of 350... Now, again, this is, this is what, uh, 16 years ago. It's exponentially greater now. But in 2003, a survey of 350 divorce lawyers revealed that porn use was a factor in more than half of their divorce cases. According to Dr. Kevin Skinner, even if 25% of the 500,000 divorce cases are due to porn, that is 125,000 divorces each and every year that are a direct result of pornography. That's too many broken homes and too much hurt and too much pain. That final statistic came from 2011, so about eight years ago. So this is a, an issue that needs to be discussed. So it's not an issue that can keep, be left swept under the rug or hidden in a corner or behind closed doors. It's here. It's a reality. It affects marriages. It affects homes. It affects our culture. It affects everything. And it is pervasive. And so it's one that we need to at least address at some level here this morning. Now, defining pornography for general culture, even for the establishment particularly, it can get tricky in the establishment of laws. How do you legislate the idea of pornography? What counts for obscene? What counts for pornography? What counts for eroticism? What counts for erotic art, artistic expression, as opposed to other things? Those are the kind of questions that come up. In the United States, the issue came to a head in 1958 in the United States Supreme Court in a case called Jacobellus versus Ohio that involved a theater manager's decision to show a popular French film called The Lovers. And within this film, The Lovers, there was a, a particularly graphic sexual scene. And so the case went to the Supreme Court. In fact, was this a violation of obscenity laws? And so that was essentially the substance of the case, a legal definition of obscenity, and therefore what could be applied to the idea of hardcore pornography. Uh, what has now become uh, not only a famous, probably an infamous statement of then uh, Justice uh, Potter, his name was Justice Potter Stewart, has become somewhat uh, famous, as I said, or infamous. Here's his statement. In his ruling, I shall not today attempt further to define the, the kinds of material I understand to be embraced with that shorthand description, hardcore pornography. And perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so, but I know it when I see it. That's the part that became infamous. I just know it when I see it. 
And the motion picture involved in this case is not that. Now, the primary primary problem with this definition is that it introduced into legislative law subjectivity, a great amount of subjectivity. It was so unclear that it left open a door wide for many things to slip up under that definition. Now, although the definition of pornography, while somewhat elusive and nuanced from a legal perspective, from a Christian perspective, is more simple. Any image or sexuality or sexual activity designed to be displayed and to elicit sexual arousal would fall under the banner of pornography. And that fits within Jesus' words in Matthew 5.28. And he says, anyone or everyone who looks at a woman with lust, everyone who looks at a woman with lust, of course there, he's addressing the heart of the observer, the one who is actually doing uh, the looking. However, if you flip that reality around, it just can equally apply to those who produce the images that are to cause that sexual desire, that inordinate sexual desire, lust. And so that stands in as a fairly biblical principle to discern what is pornography and what is not. Again, another major advance in this whole issue of pornography, now there are many other things in between here, but another major one came in 2002, again at the Supreme Court, called Ashcroft versus the Free Speech Coalition. And in this case, the Supreme Court upheld that pornography that involved any two or more consenting adults was protected under the First Amendment right of free speech. That opened up legally the door even further. Whatever, who, so whoever could be an adult, legally an adult, so 18 or above, and were said to be consenting, it made it then legally okay not only to produce, but to distribute and advertise, sell, and so on and so forth. And that was behind, at least at that level, part of the proliferation of pornographic material that is available today. However, besides the legality of it, there's also the mode at which it can be delivered. And that's part of our, what we're covering here. And that is through the internet. So the internet and pornography together with this sort of legal open door has created a significant problem for us. Now, while sexual immorality and perversion have been around since the fall, as a matter of fact, we run into that. Where do you think the first one was? Uh, Genesis chapter 4, actually. Remember, Lamech took to himself two wives. Took to himself two wives. Even from the very beginning of the fall, of the record of man after the fall, we have not only murder, but we have an example of a perversion of God's design of sex. In Genesis 6-4, just before the destruction of the world, we have another somewhat mysterious phrase that the sons of God came into the daughters of men, but clearly they're having a sexual connotation. And after that, of course, we had the destruction of the world. Some form of pornography in terms of explicit sexual imagery has been present ever since man has been able, we can go back, to write and draw. It goes back into ancient cultures and ancient civilizations in different ways. So that's always been a part of our fallen human existence. The issue here is that we live in an age where the accessibility of every form of sexually explicit material has become unprecedentedly available. Now the early stages of this condition really could could be traced back to the 80s with the advent of the video camera. But then again, it exploded even more exponentially with the advent of the internet, as we mentioned before, in the 90s. 
As a matter of fact, one has said this, porn has moved from seedy corner magazine stands and adult video stores to the privacy of our homes, offices, and dorm rooms. Pornography today has become an accepted part of life for much of society. I want to just mention these briefly. There's three primary reasons. There's three primary reasons why the internet is so effective in spreading this kind of sin. And it's under three A's. And these uh, I borrowed. But let me give them to you. Three A's. It's accessibility, affordability, and anonymity. Let me just mention these. The internet has made... Pornography, incredibly accessible. Again, it is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. No longer one does, have, does one have to put in the effort into searching it out, scheming and hiding to try to somehow get their hands on some kind of pornographic material. As a matter of fact, that kind of energy that used to be put into seeking out pornographic material has to be put in doubly so to try to avoid it in our culture. It's everywhere. It's accessible at ease and at whim. It's also the affordability, which I already mentioned. The vast majority of pornography is actually free. Those who have pornographic sites actually make their revenues, as do others, through advertisement, through teasing sort of videos that they want. They try to entice somebody to get into monthly memberships or to buy full-length material or so on and so forth. Thirdly, it is the anonymity. It's the accessibility, the affordability, and the anonymity that the internet offers. Again, with the new technology that connects each individual to the internet, there is the ability to hide. It's accessible 24-7 with almost no limitations, and the sense of safety that comes with the feeling of a cloak of anonymity. Sin likes to hide, and the internet affords the ability to hide, to hide, to, to have a secret that nobody else knows about. Of course, this hiding is before men. It is not hiding before God. And that is, of course, significant to all, but it's specifically significant to Christians pursuing holiness. Just for time's sake, I won't go there. Ezekiel 8 is a powerful picture, however, of that, where where God is showing Ezekiel this vision, and he's showing him this vision of what's going on, the sin and the abominations and the idolatry that's taking place in the temple. And he's, and he's explaining to the prophet Ezekiel how, why this judgment is going to come that's going to be so severe on Jerusalem, ultimately ending in their exile and the destruction of Jerusalem. And he takes him successively into deeper and more secret hidden chambers within the temple to show him the kind of abominations that are taking place. They thought they were doing it in secret. God is showing it's not in secret. He is well aware of what's going on. He sees it, and it will be the cause of his destruction of the, the city temple. Now, so that's just a, a general idea. Let me start first and just follow somewhat of an outline. It's really more of four main points uh, that I'll give you along the way. And the first one is this. is I want to give just a broad theology of sex and sexual sin. Theology of sex and sexual sin. Now, this is extremely broad. Uh, it'd be worthy to go in much more detail. But, but in order to understand what the sin is, we have to understand what God's design, the perfection and the holiness of God's design in giving us and designing us for sexual relationships, uh, what his intention was so we can see how much it's been perverted. So here's a brief theology of sex. 
Sex and sexuality is an essential element of being made in the image of God. It's essential. Genesis 1.26, we know it. Male and female, those are inherently sexual identifications. The only purpose of male and female physiologically is to have sex and to procreate. That's why we're designed differently. And Genesis 1.26 connects that to being made in the image of God. It's a part of being human. Now, gender is more than just the physical aspects, but it's not less than that. Sexuality is designed by God to be experienced as an ultimate expression of giving, then, within the context of the covenant of marriage. That's Genesis 2. A whole chapter is devoted, essentially, pointing to this design of God bringing male and female together in a one-flesh relationship within the covenant of marriage. Think of that. He gave one entire chapter to the creation of the universe, and then he devotes one entire chapter just to the kind of union he designed to be between a male and a female within the covenant of marriage. Highly, highly significant. The covenant of marriage then is designed by God as a reflection of the eternal relations within the Godhead and Father, Son and Spirit, three persons, one God. Why that can only be a reality realized within the divine being of the Trinity, it is something reflected within the coming together of a male and female in the union of marriage and to physically come together. It's also a template of God's covenant relationship then with his people. Have you ever thought about this? The Bible begins and ends with the imagery of marriage. With the imagery of marriage. In the Old Testament, God is the father and the husband of Israel who is the wife. In fact, Israel, because she proved to be an unfaithful wife with much spiritual apostasy is dramatically exposed in her spiritual sin in this very graphic language of sexual immorality. Very graphic language of sexual immorality. Often called a prostitute, a lascivious bride, giving her favors sexually to everyone who passes by, and on and on. That's the picture of Israel. In decidedly marital sexual terms, uh, her... Spiritual apostasy is placed. In the New Testament, Christ is referred to as the husband and the church as the bride. The intimate union of one flesh is ultimately designed, again, to point to the union then of Christ and his people. We're well familiar with this imagery. Let me just remind you of it. He says, calling on Genesis chapter 2, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh... This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and to the church. So marriage, and within that marriage, sexual unity is designed by God, created by God, to reflect our own unity and relationship with Him by virtue of the new covenant. In, in, a, in a footnote to that, the... The sexual immorality that Christians commit when they do is described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 as joining Christ to a harlot. Joining Christ to a harlot. So intimate is our union with Christ. 
The final scene, as I mentioned, of Scripture and culmination of God's creating and redeeming plan is couched, again, in the imagery of marriage. The church is described as a bride who is made ready for her husband. And indeed, that union of Christ with the church, the resurrected church, is, an I, is a picture pictured in the consummation of a marriage, which is the sexual union that comes about within a marriage. That is the picture of Christ and his church. Now at this point, after this union takes place, sex is not a part of our relationships anymore because the ultimate reality to which sex was a pointer is realized when we are in perfect intimate communion with God through Christ. So in summary, a theology of sexuality would be this, of sex and sexuality. Sex and sexuality is, in the end, designed and given by God as a glimpse and a foretaste of our being in His presence forever in eternal, intimate, and joyful fellowship and union. Sex points us to heaven. Sex ultimately is designed by God to point us to our union with Him in eternity through Christ. It is, in fact, then a part of worship. It's a part of worship. It's not unholy. It is good. It is designed to be good. It is designed to be holy. It is designed to be enjoyed. It is designed to point us to Christ. And I would just, as a footnote there, say that's the kind of imagery that we need to establish in our children before we address all of the negative things, which are easy enough to do. We need to establish with them the good and the holy intentions of God within sexual union. So this means at least two things then. One, I already mentioned that sex is holy. And two, sex is irreducibly relational. It's holy and it's relational. The right, good, and blessed expression and experience of sexual desire is encompassed within the covenant relationship of marriage. One man and one woman for life. Within this context, it is even, as I said, an act of worship and pleasing to God and points us to Christ. That's pretty wonderful. And as I said, it's important to acknowledge this up front because it's only when we have the light of the perfect that we can see the deviant expression of sin and fallen humanity for what it is, the unclean thing that it is. So here, let me just briefly mention then sexual sin. Outside of the context of the covenant of marriage, then sex is unholy. It is destructive. It is demeaning to both the individual and all those who are involved, and it pollutes the soul. Indeed, again, this is why Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness and cast in such intense sexual language. And moreover... The final kingdom of the beast is couched also in that same kind of imagery. The great harlot who sits on many waters is a picture of this final evil kingdom. Who acts and those who act with her are called acts of immorality. And she is described as the unclean things of her immorality. And the name on her forehead is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Revelation 17. Again, Demonstrating simply there the significance of sexual perversion when it's outside of God's intended purposes. Used in these cases even to describe the most horrific kind of apostasy. 
And a point we'll come back again to a couple of times, but pornography then works against and in exactly the opposite direction of God's intended purposes for sex. And that's the issue. In exactly the opposite direction. God designed sex as an ultimate physical expression of relational union within the context of covenant love. Pornography, by definition, divorces sex from its covenantal and relational context and makes it selfish, makes it a commodity to be consumed by the consumer for their own ends and their own pleasure. Exactly the opposite of what God designed it for. Indeed, it also objectifies and dehumanizes the other person, particularly women, which, by the way, are a rising statistic in the consumption of pornography. A rising statistic. Still, it's, over, it's, it's mostly men, but it's certainly becoming more and more and more a problem for women as well. So let me mention a second point then. We need to be aware of pornography's enslaving properties. Enslaving properties. So we're, we're going to end with some positive notes, but we need to get an understanding of what, what is so pernicious about pornography. First, we need to get a feel for it. Jesus said in John eight thirty four, the one who commits sin is a slave to sin, is a slave to sin. Of course, he's not talking there simply about a one-time act, but he's talking about those who per, per, uh, habitually place themselves under the sway and the influence of sinful impulses. The idea of enslavement and sin is a very powerful imagery both to depict sin's power over the unregenerate heart and our own relationship to Christ. For a believer who is in Christ, the idea of slavery pictures our relationship to him. But it is a powerful picture of sin's sway over the heart. As a matter of fact, let me just give you a couple of uh, verses here before moving on. In Romans chapter 6, he says this, Uh, In verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. So that you obey its lust. In 14 he says, sin sin shall not be master over you. You are under law, not under law, but under grace. In verse 17, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And he uses really powerful words here. As a matter of fact, The idea of reign comes from a word that's translated in its noun form as king, as ruler. That idea that he says it shall not uh, be master over you, that the verb there, be master over you, is actually the noun is from which we get Lord. From Lord, again, it speaks of the idea of power, of control, of authority. Now, although this may sound odd at first, The enslaving power of pornography is actually not simply sex. It's not sex. Just as a plain fact. Or even sexual release. The enslaving power of pornography lies here in its novelty. I'm going to explain that. It it reigns in the idea of novelty. Novelty that feeds on a covetous and greedy compulsion towards self-satisfaction. And again, he kind of gives this idea in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about the unbelieving heart. He says, they, in verse 19, have become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. It's an insatiableness 
that is fed by the availability of pornography. What do I mean that it, by saying that it's not so much sex itself, but the idea of novelty? The idea of novelty. Let me unfold that just a little bit. A key idea, let me come at it this way. The key idea behind this is caught by actually a 17th century philosopher, Blaise Pascal. You've heard of him. And, and he talks in a section in, in one of his works about boredom. And he talks about distraction and boredom. And he comes in this discussion uh, to make some points about gambling, the gambler. And, and he says this, actually. He says, a, a given man lives a life free from boredom by gambling a small sum every day. Give him every morning the money he might win that day, but on condition that he does not gamble, and you will make him unhappy. You'll make him unhappy. He must have excitement. He must delude himself into imagining that he would be happy to win what he would not as a gift if it meant giving up gambling. In other words, the gambler does not really desire the money or the game itself as such, but the thrill that he might win and that winning will make him happy. Do you see the difference? One has commented on this uh, statement by Pascal in this way. The self-delusion, what he really wants, the gambler, is this. The self-delusion that comes from the if-only syndrome, false faith that winning would make him happy. Pornography works in this same way. It constantly allures and beckons with the thrill of a new experience. Of a new experience. And yet, when that experience is gained, two things happen. One, it does not provide lasting satisfaction. And two, it compels the person then to look for another experience, another different experience. And we could also add, too, it usually ends in shame. One author relating that point uh, of Pascal to pornography says this, A person so trained on the pornographic experience isn't merely after a good sexual experience. He is hooked on the anticipation of what comes next. The rush of moving from one object of desire to the next, one body to the next, always looking to trade the one in front of his eyes for what he hopes will be the ultimate sexual experience. It's not just the idea of sex, it's the thrill of anticipation of something new and different that draws in and is never-ending. And so with the endless opportunity for another experience, another person, another novel exploit that the internet provides, it becomes a never-ending vortex of of explicit sexuality that pulls with seemingly never-ending possibility of discovering one more scene, one more person that will satisfy. But it never does and it never will because there will always be another and there will always be one more. And that is the enslaving principle, particularly one of pornography. And this is somewhat of a footnote here, but particularly powerful to children who are younger and younger being exposed to different levels of pornographic material. If the idea of novelty is powerful and enslaving to adults, even many who have had sexual experience, it's exponentially so for children who are first exposed to pornography, to naked people, or naked people engaged in sexually explicit acts. It's an overwhelmingly powerful wave of darkness and dark desire that sweeps over the soul and wields an oppressive influence. Again, it's not that the sexual desire itself is sin. Sexual desire itself is good. It's holy. It's a part of God's design. It's the dark desire driven by greed and covetousness 
and self-gratification at whatever cost to him or her personally or to those being used for their gratification. And outside the, the way that the world pre- likes to present this as glamorous, they even have adult film awards and that kind of stuff. It is a dark world of often entered into, not in every case, by those who experience some kind of sexual abuse in their past, those who have severe emotional problems, drug problems. We've had just recently in the last few months, as a matter of fact, national news of three porn actresses that have committed suicide or died. It is, it is a dark world. It is indeed a dark world. Now, that's just one level of its enslaving uh, enslaving power. Let me give you another part of that. Physiologically, and I mentioned this somewhat last week, and I'm just going to say this broadly, but it's the manipulation and perversion of how the brain even functions. We mentioned dopamine last week, which is something that's released. It's a neurotransmitter released in the brain. It's associated with the pleasure related to things such as food uh, as well as sex and, uh, and other things as well. And the internet has this amazing ability, and what we'll talk about down the road with gaming and other things too, to manipulate within the body and within the brain the production of this neurotransmitter, this chemical, that has physiological effects, significant physiological effects. And the effect of porn then on this this part of the brain and other parts too, related to the reward and response mirrors those actually of drugs, particularly even cocaine and heroin. It's highly significant. And as with drugs, the body becomes accustomed to the stimulus and requires greater and greater amounts, but with achieving lesser and lesser results. There's a constant chasing after the experience of a great high, and yet it's entrapped within this reality, this principle of diminishing returns. The more that is given to it, the less it actually satisfies. And so you end in this endless cycle. In other words, the more it's sought, the less it is able to give what it promises. Now, one result of this is the need for greater and greater stimuli to produce results. Again, if it's drugs, then the drugs need to be more and more or stronger and stronger. If it's pornography, it is sexually explicit material that continually needs to push the envelope to the next level in order to satisfy the person who continually exposes themselves to it. This is actually given a sharp rise to violent porn, things that picture rape and the most incredible scenes of degradation for women and men as well. It's dangerous. And it has an ability to shape and influence men's view of what is acceptable and sexually satisfying. And it leads to harmful sexual practices, always pushing the limit. Now, while not all who watch pornography commit violent crimes, it is interesting to note, as has been noted in several authors, that those who actually do commit violent crimes against women, however, all, I think without exception, have... Okay, thanks have uh, a past with pornography who specifically say that pornographic material influenced uh, their crimes. Thank you. Just give me a second. So, this has massive then effects. Massive effects. And one interesting effect here, just one more point on this, in terms of its enslaving, enslaving properties, is this. 
is that, as I mentioned earlier, pornography works directly opposite or against God's intended purposes for sexuality. And one of the unintended consequences of that is that it provides a variety of, or produces a variety of sexual dysfunctions. Now, we're not going to go into all of that, but let me give at least one that, that is important to note here because it illustrates the point. And those who are continually exposed to pornographic images, it actually has become quite an issue, reach a point where they fail to be able to achieve sexual arousal with a partner. So within marriages, with a husband or the wife, there's one case was even with a wife, who was continually exposed to these pornographic images, had to watch porn to enable themselves to be sexually available to their spouse. So rather than enhancing and moving one towards, which is the lie of why some pursue it, it actually destroys relationship. And in many cases, many, many cases that are multiplying, if somebody has to choose between porn and a real person, they are most often going to choose porn over an actual relationship, over an actual person, because it has such a powerful impact on the brain. And that person can't provide the availability, the experience, the novelty, and all the other things that can be accessed so easily on the internet. Porn, as is sin, is a cruel, cruel master. Now, let me just on that point make one other, one other point. And that is that marriage will not solve, as I already hinted at, the issue of pornography. It will not solve the issue of pornography. It's not simply a matter of having more sex or having sex even within a relationship. Um, It is a matter of breaking that uh, mesmerizing hold of sexual fantasy that porn offers. Pornography then in this way is a graphic example of what the writer of Hebrews says is the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. Because here's the issue. Hebrews 13, he says, Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. And that's precisely what it is. It promises to satisfy, but it entraps, it enslaves, and it ensnares. One, in a book on marriage, actually, it's uh, back there. We'll talk about it later, but... It describes it this way. The deceitfulness of sin is this. Up front, it sparkles with promise, but once we, commit it, when it, when it, once we commit it, when it's too late to back out, it entangles us in the repercussions we did not foresee and consequences we cannot evade. So that is a powerful then illustration of how all sin works within our heart. Sin constantly promises something that it will not be able to deliver, at least not permanently or in truth. So sin has to be cut off then at the root. It has to be cut off at the root. It's not merely a prevention of an activity. Just getting rid of the computer or putting a computer in another room is a helpful start. It has, a, it has something to it that is positive, but it's not the answer. It's not the answer because that's not the only issue that's going on with pornography. In order to break the root of pornography as with any sin, really, but in this issue, pornography, there is the need to grow in love for Christ, 
for the Christian. The issue isn't that pornography is so strong, it is that Christ is so undesirable. What he offers simply can't compare to what the computer screen can offer. Or your spouse, if you're married. It becomes enslaving. So much so that it produces an intensity that you hate all that threatens it. And that way it becomes then an idol. An idol. An idol, you know you have an idol in this way. Here's two easy questions to know if you have idolatry in your heart. Are you willing to sin to get it? Or if you sin if you don't get it? And that, of course, is illustrated with pornography. Let me note a third then. The nature of temptation. How it plays on the nature of temptation. For that, let me turn to James chapter 1. Just briefly, you're familiar with these, uh, this passage. He says this, um, in James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. The imagery that he uses there, particularly in verse 14, the idea of being carried away and enticed is actually imagery that comes from the hunting and fishing world. So that that provides a good metaphor, a good illustration. A fisherman, as you know, if any of you have ever fished, cast his lure into the lake or stream in order to attract a fish to bite it. And so picking up on that imagery, that first term carried away has to do with the lure of desire it's the fish hiding in the bushes who peeks out at the bait and instead of swimming away keeps looking longing considering growing more and more drawn to it it's the second the third the fourth the fifth the sixth the lingering glance that has this continually building up power within the soul of those who are gazing at this forbidden object or a worthy object in a forbidden way until it keeps drawing towards it, drawing towards it. The second term, enticed, emphasizes the cunning nature of the lust. This would picture then the self-justification, the reasoning that goes on in the heart of the one who's considering a sinful action. You know it's sin, but the more you think about it, the more it is rationalized, the more likely then the one is to be drawn to it and actually to commit the sin where it goes from an inward desire to an actual external act. It's like the fish who says, I know there is a line attached to that bait and there is a person right above me with a fishing pole, but I'm so hungry and that bait looks so good, surely I could just swim real fast and grab it. Even though that fish may have been caught several times before. See, reason falls to the side. So the process of temptation is then that That first, an object captures the attention and it implants or presents an opportunity for satisfaction to the eye or to the mind. Second is the gaze in which it's considered and the possibility or attraction of it begins to gain more of a hold. Third, it is to move closer with rationalization and justification, displaying greater and greater degrees of intentionality in gaining it. And the fourth then is to act and sin is conceived, as James calls it. The hooks and the bait are always changing and working to attract you and to entice you to take hold of the bait. And again, it always has the promise of satisfaction. This is, again, precisely how Satan works. I think in one of the most 
powerful illustrations. It's actually a word. It's only used twice in the New Testament, this form of it. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, it's used twice in the book of Ephesians, and it's translated as schemes. It's translated as schemes. The word behind it, the word is actually methodia, and it's so you can imagine. It has the idea of method behind it. Method, intentionality, something that is methodical, is planned, it is intentional, it's working towards a purpose by a very set pattern. That is what the writer of Scripture, Paul, here, describes as how Satan works. He says, by the tri- as a result, we're no longer to be children. Now here he's talking about false doctrine. He says, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness in deceitful scheming. And then he uses that word again over in verse 11 of chapter 6. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil. Again, this is powerfully illustrated with the way that pornography works. There are innumerable ways in which pornographers seek methodically to market their product, to inundate us and desensitize us, slowly drawing a person in. It is intentional and it lures with hooks employed by the pornographers on the internet. Let me just put this to you. Try to go one day, one entire day without being exposed to some form of pornography. One day. Try to flick on a news channel and not have something come up on the side. Try to put in YouTube and not have a video in the list of other videos come up on the side. Try to do a Google search. You can't escape it. It's constantly there. That's the bait. The bait that Satan is constantly putting out. Until after a while, you almost become desensitized to it. Now, of course, in James, he's not so much talking about the bait as he is what's taking place within the person. Notice what he says. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And again, this is when the gaze of the eye and the soul is taken away from Christ to the object. The more you stare at the object of lust, the greater it becomes. And the greater it becomes, the more Christ fades into the background. The more reason fades into the background until ultimately there is the committing of sin. Now let me note one last point here and we're going to end on this. And again, these are just hitting some high points. There's two paths then for the souls. We think about pornography and our exposure to it. Uh, the consequences of pornography on the soul and our culture are massive, yet even more are the eternal consequences. In the list of sins, effect on the heart, sensuality, immorality, or other sexual perversions consistently top the list. Can you think of some, some examples? Romans 1, Galatians 5, and many others. When Jesus talks about Sin, how it resides in the heart, sensuality and immorality and fornication, adultery. Those are all elements of what are listed in Mark chapter 7, for example, and many other passages. Moreover, twice in Revelation and in descriptions of the glories of heaven, Scripture mentions this. This is always striking, uh, to me anyway. I'm sure to you as well. In Revelation 21 through 22, which is almost entirely focused on the glories that are to come when we are in union with Christ, he twice, he twice stops to mention those who are not going to be in heaven. So while he's given heaven to the encouragement of believers, John twice mentions under the leading of the Spirit to mention those who won't be there. He says in 21.8, but for the cowardly and unbelieving, abominable murderers and immoral persons, 
and sorcerers and idolaters and liars. It's incredibly then serious to, to the Lord and it has eternal consequences. But the reality is, and, and this is where we want to go to lead us into the table, is that whatever interaction or whatever uh, experience that you've had with pornography, whether it be in the past or whether it may be for some presently, there is the forgiveness and the grace that is in Christ. There is the forgiveness and the grace that is in Christ. There is no depth of sexual immorality, perversion, or enslavement that is beyond the forgiveness and the cleansing grace that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For any who want true freedom, who want true forgiveness, who turn to Christ, that's why he suffered on the cross. As a matter of fact, thinking about that, the verse that immediately jumped to my mind was in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul says this. He says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost yet for this reason I found mercy so that me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Eternal life. Eternal life is always the offer and the promise that is in Christ. There is no grace there is no sin, I should say, that is beyond the grace of Christ. And even though the destructive consequences of pornography blinds the soul to the true glory that is found only in Christ, even though it promises but it deceives and enslaves, the opposite truth is that what God promises is true. What God promises is true freedom, the freedom of truth, the freedom of forgiveness, the freedom of joy. The joy of his blessing and the joy of a clear conscience and the joy of true relational intimacy that God designed for sex within marriage. Now let me, let me end then on that point. Because you might also be thinking, what about the single person? Let me, let me give you this quote. This is by Jonathan Edwards. And he's describing here this picture of the glories that are to come. And he's, and he's talking about it within its imagery, this biblical context of marriage. He says this. In that resurrection morning, when the Son of Righteousness shall appear in the heavens, shining in all His brightness and glory, He will come forth as a bridegroom. He shall come in the glory of His Father and with all the holy angels. And at that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, shall the whole elect church complete as to even every individual member, and each member with the, with the whole person, both body and soul, and both perfect and glory, ascend up to the Lord to meet the Lord in the air, to be with the Lord forever. Then will come the time when Christ will sweetly invite his spouse to enter in with him into the palace of his glory. This is the consummation. Which he had been preparing for her from the foundation of the world and shall take her by the hand and lead her with him, lead her in with him. And this glorious bridegroom and bride shall with all their shining ornaments ascend up together into the heaven of heavens. The, the whole multitude of glorious angels waiting upon them. And this son and daughter of God in their united glory and joy present themselves together before the Father. And they shall together receive the Father's blessing. And shall thenceforth rejoice together in consummate, uninterrupted, immutable and everlasting glory. In the love and embrace of each other. And in their shared enjoyment of the love of the Father. That's actually what sex is pointing to. That. And that's something that's shared by every believer. 
that is in Christ. In another sermon called Heaven is a World of Love, he puts it in this way. In the happiness of love, and the happiness of living in such love, heavenly love, holy and humble and divine love, love to God and love to Christ and love to the saints for God and Christ's sake and the enjoyment of the fruits of God's love, holy communion with God and Christ forever. That's the end to which we were created. This love is unending. It's an unhindered joy of communion with God in Christ. And it's what our soul longs for. And it is the true fulfillment of what sexual union within marriage anticipates. And it's seeing this that enables us to see the dark perversion of pornography and every other sexual sin and to rise above it. Moreover, since the true intimacy that we are destined for is in our union with Christ as the church, the bride of Christ, it provides the same foundation of joy and motivation for sexual holiness for both the married and the single person. Because we're all seeking the one goal of intimacy with Christ, which is what it all points to anyway. That's the full measure of what we now experience in part. So in this coming marriage and fulfillment and experience of the true and ultimate intimacy for which we were redeemed is what we anticipate this morning in the table. We anticipate that. We anticipate being with him. We anticipate being brought as his bride into the bridegroom's chamber. We anticipate the unending and joyful spiritual fellowship and delight that we'll have with our true husband forever as his bride, the church. And so therefore, as we take then the Lord's table, we want to present ourselves as a pure and a chaste bride. We want to be dealing with sin, a holy bride, one who expresses her love for her husband by her ridding herself of all of those things that would dishonor him and grieve him and grieve his heart, for he is our true lover. We do so as a bride who was purchased, not with a dowry of silver and gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. And so let as we prepare to take the table... Let us prepare our hearts, and particularly if there are, is any of you who are dealing with sexual sin, uh, now is the time to commit yourself to fighting against that, as you may already be, and be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ, the forgiveness, the love, the mercy that is in our Savior, to live lives internally and externally that are holy and pleasing to Him. Let me pray, and Kathleen will come up, and the men, the men will pass out the elements. Father, Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your goodness in establishing for us that most wonderful relationship of marriage. Coming with its own struggles. Coming with its own temptations. We're not yet perfect even in our Christian marriages. But we delight in this establishment of an institution and a relationship in which there is so much joy in those who are pursuing Christ, in those who have truly experienced the gospel and who know the reality of grace and forgiveness and holiness. Help us who are married to continue to increase in our enjoyment of all that you've given to us and our spouse, to love them as husbands, to love as Christ, our wives as Christ loved the church and wives to love their husbands and submit to them as the church does to Christ. 
and what joyful unity there is there. For those who are single, may their joy and their passion be the full experience of all that we have through our union with Christ and our communion with you, Father, in him. And may we as a church demonstrate ourselves as the faithful bride of the one who has bought us. We commit ourselves to you, and I pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.